Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And today we are talking about the very exciting episode, Murder Takes the Bus. Teach, you want to give us a summary of the episode? Sure will. So Jessica and Amos are on their way to a sheriff's convention, apparently, that is a thing in Maine, where Amos is very excited about the buffet, uh, which is uh, very much in character. Unfortunately, things go awry. They are stranded by a rainstorm, and then there's a murder. Turns out the murder victim was someone who was responsible for a robbery several years prior that ended up in the death of a young woman. And her father, as it turns out, is on the bus. And, of course, there's a whole bunch of suspects, but it turns out he's the one who committed the murder, but actually did it twice, first by strangling and then by stabbing with a screwdriver in the hopes that he would deflect any suspicion from himself. But it also turns out that one of the other people on the bus is said murder, or sorry, the murder victim's accomplice in the crime. But most importantly, really, the thing I can't help but mention is that Rima Clanahan is in this episode, which makes the whole thing even more wonderful. So it's like a perfect, like, Murder, She Wrote episode in just so many ways. Yeah, um, and I, I don't know why you didn't lead with that. I wanted to save the best for last. <laughs> the first thing in my notes is Blanche! But of course, she wasn't she wasn't Blanche yet. She wouldn't be Blanche until the fall. I love it. It's, and also, her the other one of the people, other people on the bus is the guy who plays her father in the second time that he appears. David Wayne, who is Big Daddy, who is also Digger Barnes on Dallas, and um, of course knows Peter Fisher and Levinson and Link, the creators of Murder, She Wrote, because he was Inspector Queen on their series, Ellery Queen. Yeah, so it's, I mean, I personally found it to be like sort of the quintessential cozy murder mystery, because, you know, everyone's gathered in the same place. There's a, you know, a murder, you know, the, the murder, obviously, and I don't know. It just, I liked it. I loved it. But wait, there's more, because you haven't mentioned that we also have Linda Blair from The Exorcist mm-hmm. uh, as a pregnant woman in this episode, and her, uh, the the guy who's playing her spouse is actually one of the children of one of the people involved with the robbery who got killed, so that adds to our suspect mm-hmm. pool. And then we also have Larry Linville, known as Major Burns mm-hmm. from MASH, playing Rue McClanahan Blanche miriam's husband so it's really it's like a treasure trove of of people um and a really fun suspect pool for this murder i mean i have a quick question does larry linville ever not play a prick like he (laughs) is just one of the most un you know sort of quintessentially unpleasant people in television i don't think i've ever seen a role where he doesn't play an asshole yeah so he plays a professor uh who's like kind of know-it-all very curmudgeonly doesn't really want anything to do with anything Calls his wife an empty attic because she makes like a remark that his brain is full of like useless trivia. He's like better a cluttered attic than a or whatever he says. I can't remember. Then he has some sort of metaphor that's very funny. Now that I've lost it. Good story, bro. 
Um, and she plays a character named Miriam, who's a librarian, and she uh, she's like knitting all the time, and she's oh, she's just delightful, and I love that her makeup is really subdued, mm-hmm. so she looks kind of like dowdy and very unblanche like. Yeah, she's more akin to like Aunt Fran from Mama's Family than she is Blanche. Oh yeah, although I can see like I can see faint glimmers of what would we would later see with Blanche's character, like when she's being hysterical that the murderer might come for her, is evocative of when <laughs> Blanche thinks that. The, the cheese man is going to, like, do anything to her for information. So th- th- that's what's so funny about watching stars, like, develop over several, you know, several roles, is you can see shadows of each one in each subsequent one. Yeah. And um, I think, and we she's also, like, a bad librarian in some ways. Like, she um, steals this rare first edition of a book. That's part of the, you know, the subterfuge of the murder because she sees this book and recognizes that it's actually worth a lot of money. And she's like, hey, he's a professor and I'm a librarian. Like, we're broke as fuck. Of course I stole the book. We need the money. <laughs> well, one of my favorite parts is very early on. Obviously, she recognizes Jessica because she's a librarian. And then she says, and I, something to the effect of, you're on our most stolen list. And Jessica's like, what? Yeah. She's like, yeah, people borrow your books and then never return them. Which, first of all, I mean, I have... I am guilty of having done that in the past. Don't do that, people. Don't do it that. It is bad. I have done that in the past. It's one of my great. Sh- it's my great secret shame, which I'm now confessing. I've never to- done. I can't believe you've done that. It wasn't. Imp- I wasn't on purpose. I wasn't. This might change our friendship. Uh, this is the thing of, of all the many things that I have confessed to you. This is the one that's going to be the. <laughs> yes, because libraries are so important. But probably it doesn't happen as much these days because I bet people are checking out ebooks. Right. I mean, I check out books from the library regularly now. I was an undergrad. I did a lot of stupid things in undergrad. Like, so anyway, we don't need to get too far off the. It wasn't stolen. It was just negligent. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you all could see the look Bridget is giving me right now. Actually, I wasn't paying any attention. I was scanning ahead to my notes to see what to talk about next. Um. Oh, the creepy guy, the murder victim. We should talk about. Mm-hmm. Um. His yes. character's name is Gilbert Stoner, and um, the, char- the the actor is John Davis Chandler, and I just was really excited because he is the also the creepy guy in Adventures from Babysitting, which was, like, the movie of my childhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, that movie was everything. Well, I mean, I have actually never seen it, if you can believe that. I actually can, because I think you're just enough years younger than me. Mm. Uh, that I can believe that. And then I also believe that it was probably um, skewed more toward a female audience. But TJ, well, it is, it's such a good movie. I mean, I did watch My Little Pony as a child, <laughs> so. They have, this is, they have a very it, large male following. We're going to have to edit so much of this out because we are, like, going everywhere. Yes, well, let's focus. Let's focus then. Focus. <laughs> um, okay, so. Well, let's talk about the murder victim since we since you brought him up. So what I find interesting is this is not necessarily in the mold of the kill the, the bad patriarch mo- mode of murder hero, but it is one of those where we are led to sympathize with the murderer because as it turns out, as I mentioned in the, the lead-in, he was responsible for the death of an innocent bystander, which of course is the bus driver's daughter. And it's very clear that he's not a very pleasant person. Like clearly his time in prison has not reformed him. He's just kind of curdled into a an unpleasant individual, which we don't see very much of. Like, it, the episode doesn't give us a lot of, like, visual evidence to, to that effect. We just get it from secondhand. But that is, you know, one of those moments where we are led to think, well, this guy, the murderer, is not that bad. Like, he is, to some degree, justified since he confronts the murderer, you know, the, the bank robber, and is like, 
you know, you killed my daughter. And he's like, well, she was just some dumb kid who happened to be there at the wrong place at the wrong time, which obviously is a really shitty thing to say to someone. It's a horrible thing to say. So I'm not saying that, like, obviously murder is not okay, and Jessica doesn't give it her blessing either, but she does say, you know, I think it's likely that he'll get a good lawyer and get off for, reason, you know, temporary insanity, which, I mean, checks out. And like I said, I think it's one of those moments where it's not as morally clear-cut as we might like it to be that because life isn't that way yeah she's actually quite sympathetic it's one of the first times that we've seen her um act that way and what's fun about this is that she first arrives at the fact that ben the bus driver was the murderer uh, and goes through the whole rigmarole and and then you know he breaks down and admits it and she's like sorry you weren't actually the killer somebody was strangled him before you stabbed him and so then like up it's like reboot we have to continue the investigation and then we arrive back at Ben again. You know, that's part of the fun of this episode, right? Killed him twice. Yeah, I kind of love that, actually. I, I enjoyed the way the episode sort of, like, doubled back on itself. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting, like, narrative move that we don't always see in Murder, She Wrote. And it's interesting to see Jessica also just be like, I was an idiot. I was clearly, like, not really paying attention. And she says to Amos, like, you were right to start with. Yeah. <laughs> Which is... You know, an interesting move because we know that Amos isn't always the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I also I think it's interesting that, you know, that whole gimmick of like, no, he was already dead when you killed him is used a lot in cozy mysteries. And it, it mm-hmm. it's really interesting to me because it, it's actually kind of horrifying. Right. Like because the shtick is always like, OK, yeah, I did it. I stabbed him. No, no, no. You weren't the actual killer. Someone killed him first. And so then we're supposed to be like. Oh, you're fine, right? Oh, it's it's fine right. that you tried to kill him because he was already dead. But, like, no, that person is murderous. I mean, like, they actively tried to take another human being's life. And, like, the, the gimmick of the narrative that has these double murders is always like, oh, no, you're fine. It wasn't you. Right. It's horrifying. Well, I mean, it's scary. Was, it is. It is horrifying. I mean, because as you say, it suggests that there is something deeply disturbed about this person, that even if they didn't succeed this time, like clearly there is a tendency within them to yeah. be capable of such an action. And as I was watching this with my boyfriend, and he's like, you know, he may not, when, when it was not revealed yet that he was actually the murderer, he's like, he might want to just shut up because he could still get in trouble for attempted murder, even if exactly. the victim in question was already dead. Exactly. Yeah. I think that this episode also has um, Drayson, who's the insurance investigator who's following Stoner out of prison because uh, they're expecting that Stoner, now that he's been released, will lead them back to the money from the robbery that was never discovered. And then, as we said earlier, it also has the character who's the son of someone who was involved in the robbery with Stoner who got killed. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, it's, I mean, this is also one of those narrative shticks, right? But it's, it's a strangely bizarre coincidence that all of these people are on the same bus. The only one who's not there coincidentally is Ben. Like, he deliberately uh-huh. changed routes with another bus driver to be on the bus so he could kill Stoner. But the rest of them, it's like, this is this is getting weird that you guys are this connected, you know? Right. It, it struck me as being very Agatha Christie-esque in its, like, sort of containment. Yeah. Like, everything was sort of... this. You know, the field of action is very small. Like, it's the bus yes. and the cafe. The bus in the cafe because they're driving to Boston and there's a rainstorm and the roads are closed and then Ben fakes an engine problem with the bus. So they pull up next to a cafe and they're stranded there because now the roads are closed off. The radio smashed. 
So it's it's really this closed environment, and much like the one that was on the island where the painter mm-hmm. played by Cesar Romero was killed, you know, I love that because it's it's a really small ensemble of people, and one of them mm-hmm. is a murderer walking around with the rest of them, right? I think it really heightens the fun and the tension. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I think Rue McClanahan's performance is so crucial there because she kind of, she captures so perfectly the kind of neurotic librarian stereotype. Like, and I think that's a role that we lose sight of sometimes with Blanche because Blanche is not necessarily like that kind of almost frumpy, but nevertheless, you know, really emotionally overwrought. But we do see it, like I said earlier, in like Mama's Family's Fran or um, we see it also in her role in Maud. And I think that's, you know, I think that she helps to sort of articulate for us how you know, how tense that entire environment could be locked in a cafe with a presumed murderer. Because, of course, as far as any of them know, like, he, they could be next, since we don't know the motivation yet for why the murder has taken place. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are scenes where they're sitting around, like, eating pie and drinking coffee and just sort of waiting to hear what the next, you know, bit of news is. And I'm like, I would not be sitting at a table with strangers in this moment. You know, I'd have my back to the mm-hmm. wall. I'd be like, I, would, I certainly wouldn't be eating and drinking. I'd be like, I don't trust any of you. I don't know you people. Like, this is terrifying. Right. So speaking of eating, I need I needed to clarify this with you and with our listeners. So if you're listening and you want to weigh in on this, this is the kind of thing you need to weigh in to help us. Where do we stand on cheddar cheese on apple pie? <laughs> I feel like that's the crux of this episode. So for the listeners who may not have watched this episode recently, Amos and Jessica both ordered some fresh baked apple pie from this very skilled baker and owner of a cafe. And then Amos says, and bring it with a slice of cheddar. And it's like... I find that, that is cool. the most disgusting Thank thing you. I can even imagine. I was hoping what he was going to ask for was ice cream, which is the only like accoutrement you should have with apple pie. Actually, you should just eat apple pie plain as is. Mm, if you, I feel very strongly I about mean, that, I, and I also think it should be cool. It should not oh, be warm. Oh, you're wrong. Warm is no, disgusting. No, 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 no. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The best way you like it uh, hot with the ice cream oh, yes, slightly melted. Not super hot, but just like uh, hot enough that it starts. Oh, mm, delicious. Anyway, and it starts melting the ice yep, cream. Oh, yeah, delicious. But definitely not with cheddar, which is so strange because like I love fruit and cheese plates, but. Yes. You do not put cheddar cheese on apple pie that's gross. I know, but it happens, and I needed I needed Bridget yeah. to talk about this. Like, that was the thing. Yeah. When I was watching this episode, I was like, that's the thing. That's the crux of the matter for me. That's the most important part of this episode for you. It is. And I, <laughs> this is where listenership is important. Like, we know you're out there. We need you to weigh in, either on Instagram <laughs> or on Twitter. I'll put it on our Spotify poll with this episode. Yeah, it's like, where do you stand on cheddar cheese on apple pie? If you're a monster, you'll have approve of it. But. You know, I also, I think that, um, you know, the cafe owner, Ralph, says that he makes the pie fresh, who presumably he also makes his own crust. And I was always taught that it was an insult to a baker um, because the cheddar cheese sort of melts into the crust and it affects the flakiness of the crust and, and your ability mm. to taste the crust. And for people who make crust from scratch, like that's really important that you get the buttery flakiness and you can tell you can gauge whether they've added enough salt to the crust. And I mean, I usually tip, I typically just buy pre-made crust because I'm lazy, but that's neither here nor there. Oh, those are no, 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 my friend. Um, those are vile compared to hand- handmade. Oh, uh, yes, but you're a food snob. I am a food snob. Anyway. The uh, the other thing that Amos, I mean, I think you said buffet, but I'm, I don't think it is a buffet because he talks about not, having I... um, potato soup. And he's like, I love, I just love Amos so much. I, I, I absolutely adore him because um, he's like checking his watch the whole time this bus is broken down and that they're stranded. And he's like, now we've missed the potato soup. <laughs> now we're going to miss this. 
And he's just like really upset at all of the parts of this amazing sheriff convention dinner that he's going to miss. I mean, clearly the, the main sheriff's association banquet is the place to be. Like that's what, you're, <laughs> that's what you aspire to, which we also learn. I th- but they were going know, to Boston tea. Well, well, no, Maine. no, it's in Portland. The, 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 the thing they're going to is in Portland, but the bus itself is the one to Boston, but they stop off in Portland, which is what their destination. Oh, I see. I, okay, okay. Which I thought that was that, makes that, more that sense. was a bit confusing to me too. I had to think. I had I had to like think about. It. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense, I suppose. And we should add that like Jessica's accompanying him because she's the featured guest speaker at of the sheriff's convention. Is. And then the best part about the sheriff's convention dinner is that they're going to do a drawing to give away a big screen TV, which Amos is really, really hoping to win. And then of course that the they don't make it because. You know, there's been a couple of murders. Um, and then they find out the next day that actually Jessica Jessica won the drawing. But she wasn't there, so she didn't get the TV. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if, if she would be quite that devastated. She just she just give it to Amos. Let's be I was going to say, she'd just give it away. I mean, she doesn't want a, TV, a big screen TV. No way. I mean, does she even have a TV in her house? I mean, Yes, I because she, she often does, listens right. to the news bizarrely at the exact moment they're reporting something connected to a case. I know. I'm just being, I was being <laughs> facetious. I know she has a TV, but I'm saying that, like, J.B. J. Fletcher is not the type to want a major home, ste- home theater system, so. And a- I think she would give it to Amos, but. <laughs> but let's, since we're talking about J.B. and we're talking about her sort of aesthetic choices, I loved her outfits this, or her one, I guess her one outfit this time, which is a lovely, like, it's a, it's a plain outfit, but I do think that there's something appealing about it as well. But what did you think, since I know you're also a fashion? Well, you make a, a really good point, you know, so we talked about how it's a closed um, physical environment, but it's also temporally a closed episode because it all takes place within the space of a couple of hours. Uh, whereas usually our murders take place one night and the next morning we're investigating and maybe the next day we solve it. I mean, this is all within the space of a couple of hours. So she only has one costume. Right. And it's it seems appropriate if it's the one she's going to be wearing to the convention. Because like it's like what? Like a nice brown blouse and then like a nice um, neckerchief or ascot, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. It just seemed it was a very pleasant appearance for her and very in keeping with her persona i thought without without being like outstanding but yeah not she's bizarrely not too dressed up for a formal event um and amos of course is just in his sheriff's gear so this isn't quite a fancy dinner right it's the main sheriff's i don't think they're necessarily going to be like the highfalutin type of folk the salt (laughs) of the earth like amos you know Actually, the costume that I really like is um, Miriam's Mm -hmm. because she has these big giant glasses that are reminiscent of Jessica's glasses. But then she also has this like pink and cream sort of sweater and silk blouse combination with a pussy bow around the neck. Um, She just looks really like sort of cute and charming. Mm -hmm. Well, I know. And I think that that's a really key part of that character and also like how easily McClanahan can like slip into these kinds of roles, which again, you know. It's hard for us to see her as not Blanche, but she was really a woman of extraordinary versatility when it came to the type of character she could play. And David Wayne, who plays Mr. Leffingwell, uh, we know him best as Big Daddy, is um, he's wearing like a cute little cap oh, and a bow, t- a bow tie. <laughs> and a little like pocket watch. Like you can see the chain like on the vest. Oh, I love it. <laughs> he's such a little nerd. And then we also have uh, this guy who's wearing like a sea captain's um, you know, pea coat and cap, and then of course it all turns out to be a costume because he's he's not a real sea captain, which Jessica learns when he ties a knot incorrectly. He ties a granny knot rather than um, uh, whatever the other. Yeah, which knot. you yeah. know raises my question of like, why did he volunteer to tie the knot? 
Right. Obviously, knots and sailors are like the most obvious connection. Like if you're not a sailor, don't don't volunteer to tie knots. Well, sure. But if you, you know, if you don't know that much about being a sailor, I'm not sure you would even have that assumption about knots. No, I think if you live in Maine, you know that knots (laughs) and sailing go hand in hand. So why would you say, oh, I'm pretending to be a sailor today. I shall volunteer to tie this knot. Well, that's a good question. They're going to find you out in five seconds. You know what I mean? Which Jessica does, which is, which is lovely. Yeah. But of course she, I love that she lies at first. She goes, it's very fine work. (laughs) And then later she's like, Boo, you can quit pretending now. I mean, of course, Jessica Fletcher would be the person to notice that it's not the appropriate kind of not. Like, that just mm-hmm. definitely tracks. But it's also, again, you know, one of those false lead or false, you know, uh, I guess we could call them like red herrings. Yeah, because we're led to believe that he could have been the first killer. Right. If Ben was the screwdriver killer, maybe he was the strangler because he's pretending to be someone he's not. Right. And what also struck me about that is is, you know, there's that moment when it's, you know, when Jessica confronts him and then he goes for the gun and then tries to, like, shoot them and they overcome him. Like, you could tell that they weren't really invested in this fight scene because the camera, like, cuts back to Jessica watching so you don't actually see that much of the action on screen. So it Uh it was just one of those moments I was like, okay, clearly we're not supposed to be that invested in this particular, like fight, this particular hand-to-hand combat, as it were. Yeah, it's not going to go anywhere. It's fine. Yeah. Just another, like, interesting formal moment, I suppose. Well, I think it also ties into the production values of this episode. So mm-hmm. there's a couple of things that I wanted to talk about with regard to that. I mean, first of all, we said it's it's closed environment, and uh, it actually strikes me how cheap this episode was to produce, because apart mm-hmm. from paying for the guest stars, we have very little by way of set, uh, and we have, like, as you said, like, minimal stunts, special effects, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So it's actually, it was re- probably really cheap to produce, probably really quick to produce, too. Mm-hmm. And then what I did notice, though, is in the finished version, um, there's lots of really great use of cinematography to sort of guide us through the story. Mm-hmm. So, like, Drayson gets on the bus, we get the close-up of his gun and holster, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the creepy guy is reading a book, we get a close-up on the book so we can all read the title and recognize the book so that when it comes back later in the plot, we remember it. And we see the look, of, like, the camera zooms in on his face, so we see the look of, like, dismay or fear that he has when he gets onto the the bus, you know, when he sees his former business partner, or quote-unquote business partner, I suppose you could call him. So you see the look of, like, dismay that he has at at that moment that he gets on. So in uh, film and media studies, you know, we talk about the ways that the camera kind of serves as a guide for the audience, which probably um, people who aren't trained in film and media studies recognize maybe without consciously realizing. And so what I like is that um, these things might feel sort of gimmicky to us, but they're all really important ways that the episode is steering us to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And we've talked in the past about how that's especially important in TV with commercial interruptions and with the idea that we're watching, but we're also doing other things around our house, you know. And so those signposts become really useful tools, I think, to guide the audience. That's a thing that Murder, She Wrote does especially well, and I think that helps to explain why it endures as a as a popular television show like that's one of the things that continues to stand out to me is you know why is it that murder she wrote has such a robust perhaps subterranean fandom as we've both learned as this as we've done this podcast and the the extreme leadership that we've encountered and i think that one of the reasons is because it is so as you say cinematographically complex you know complex and also gives these signposts to viewers even now even when we're sort of when we are trained now to like watch tv much more intently than necessarily would have been the case when it was originally on the air 
Mm-hmm. I should say it might feel a little bit cheesy for an audience sure. today, um, especially if you're watching on a small screen really close to your face, like an iPad or something. But this this comes straight out of like mm-hmm. the work of Hitchcock and the work of people that Hitchcock was inspired by, this idea that you, you show a close-up of something that you're going to call back to later in the movie, and that sort of guides the audience to remember that object and its importance. And I mean, it's even true in theater, like Chekhov's, you know, gun. Like, you, if, there, if you see a book or a gun in the first, you know, five minutes of the episode, you know that it's going to have some kind of importance later on. So we could call it, like, Fletcher's book, I suppose, if you want to go that far. The other thing that struck me in this episode um, was the use of music. Mm -hmm. There's um, a kind of a a chord of strings, like a a couple of notes of strings that are repeated over and over, almost like a leitmotif throughout the episode. And it, um, I don't know, it's it's different than we normally hear in Murder, She Wrote Music, right? Right. I mean, I at least, at least when I was watching it, I felt very uneasy, Mm -hmm. even though, of course, there's nothing necessarily particularly sinister about the ep- about the happening and certainly the, re- the you know the resolution is not particularly sinister like it's not like the murderer is some kind of like monster he's a grieving father who had you know he was confronted with the utter you know unfeelingness of the person who killed his daughter but it's it is it does have that tar- dark and stormy night like sinister feel to it and i think part of that is the rain but also as you point out it's that uneasy strain of music that we hear repeatedly that kind of encourages our heart to beat faster like it's almost like a heartbeat itself it's almost like it's almost like the pulsing of the uh, dun dun yep. dun dun it's like over yep, and like, over dun, 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 two dun, notes dun, dun, and it's just well you just made that sound like jaws well because it is <laughs> i well that was not entirely deliberate but now that i think about it it's a very similar kind of like effect like it's the it's the television like the, the screen trying to get us to feel with it and I think that's a really interesting move for Murder, She Wrote to take. Since it's, uh, you know, as we've pointed out, is largely sort of lighthearted. And the episode itself is not particularly sinister, but there's always that undertone of sinisterness going on there, nevertheless. Yeah, I really like this episode. I did, too. I, I mean, like, what surprised me, I, I was just kind of raptured by it. Like, there's some episodes, there's no episode of Murder, She Wrote that I don't like. But there's some that keep hold of you in ways that others don't. And for some reason, I found this one to be a moving one and also one that kept me really kind of on the edge of my seat until the conclusion. And also, like I said, I mean, I think there's also something tragic about it. Like this incident that happened, what, 10 years previously, 10, 15 years previously, has had tremendous least scars. I mean, obviously we mm-hmm. have the, the son of the murder, like one of the, the robbers whose life was upended and we are led to believe has, you know, been a bit of a ne'er-do-well, if we can use that phrase. And But also, obviously, there's the, the woman... You know, the young girl's father who bears the scar of his daughter's death. And even, I would argue, the murderer clearly, you know, has turned in on himself and become a very bitter, horrible person. So it's one of those episodes that really suggests that crime has a legacy. Yeah, which is really nice because we've talked before about how the speedy resolution of these episodes sometimes leads us to think that once the murderer is solved and they confess... Um, that everything's over, we can move on with life, right? Which isn't mm-hmm. actually how grief and trauma work. And so I think you're right that there's something really nice about this having the backstory of a crime that happened in the past so we can see that it still has an effect on people today. Yeah, it's, I, I, I like that about the episode. And I like that's one of the things that, you know, we uncover as we sort of talk our way through what's going on. Because it's not something I would necessarily have recognized if I was just watching it. You know, if I was watching it on homework with my mom, for example. But, you know, sitting down and really thinking it with the episode and sort of like spending a little time with it can be very productive and yielding up these kind of messages that I think are there. It just takes a little bit more sustained attention to get to them. 
The other thing is that um, we're told it's the Danvers robbery. We say that over and over throughout the episode. So uh, I think that that was fun for me because it reminded me of the um, the Danbury scalpel murder case in a couple of episodes right. ago where it's like yes. they're naming these crimes, which I guess enriches the textual universe of murder she wrote because it makes it seem like mm-hmm. it's something we should all know. Like, don't you remember the Danvers robbery? Right. Because, you know, the guy, the owner of the cafe is like, oh, yeah, I remember that, you know? And so... It's not just a robbery. It was the Danvers robbery. Right. And, you know, in a state or in an area that's relatively, like, small town oriented, those kind of things linger in the memory, you know? And it's something mm-hmm. that sort of is a, is a benchmark for the community that everybody was like, well, do you remember where you were when the, you know, when the, when the trust was robbed? The other thing that stood out to me, Teach, we've been accused of um, politicizing this podcast, but I think it's important to note that, like, all media has some reflection of ideology within it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's inescapable for any text, written right. or visual. And what stood out to me in this one was, uh, first of all, the robbery was done, obviously, because people wanted money. Mm-hmm. Right. But then Rue McClanahan's character steals the book um, because she needs that money. And there's this like great moment that's it has nothing to do with the rest of the story, except it, it ends up being a clue toward the fact that she's the one who stole the book. It's her and Linda Blair's character and they're talking and Linda Blair's character is pregnant. And she says, oh, you know, we never wanted children because on our salaries, who could afford them? And Linda Blair's character says, do you think we can? So it's, it's mm-hmm. such a quick moment. But it's like. It's one of those reflections that you and I pick up on of like, listen, times are getting really tough for the middle class in the 1980s, right? And the idea that like yeah. a pers- two people mm-hmm. with professional jobs, a librarian and a professor, they feel like they can't afford to support children. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty crazy, right? Like, I mean, it's not as if like they're at the bottom of the economic ladder. But as you say, this is the era of a hollowing out of the middle class where it where it's the definitive shift where the post-war affluence begins to wane as wealth skews upward and leaves behind university faculty who can't afford to have, you know, who can't afford to have a child, even though you have a two-income household. Pretty crazy stuff. And I like that it's a little, if you will, grace note that we, you know, would not necessarily. (laughs) You had to. You just had to. We're getting to the end. I had to. I had to sneak it in there somewhere. You, you, you can't. You are incapable of stopping yourself. I think it's called branding. Look it up. Like that's. The thing. I don't that's want. That. I don't want that to be our brand. It's not your brand. It's my specific brand. It's not. It's not the Cabot Cove Gazette brand. It's my part. So when you do other podcasts, do you you talk about Grace Notes all the time? I do actually. It's my thing. <laughs> um. The Night the Hangman Sang. It's the name of the book. And I love that title. And now I feel like I want to go write a book with that title. Yeah, I think you should. That's my final thought. Yeah, I think you should do it. Well, Teach, we should probably wrap this up. Okay. That's all I've got to say. That's all I've got to say, too. Murder Takes the Bus. Thanks for playing along, everybody. Absolutely. So for the Cabot Cove Gazette, we also want to just say thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, we do appreciate you. I mean, we've been kind of blown away by the support, both on Instagram and through our downloads. We enjoy doing this podcast, and we love that all of you seem to love this show as much as we do. So for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm TJ West. I'm Bridget Keys, And we will see you all next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.